0: This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. and you're listening to episode 116. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me, shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Now I hope you are all continuing to stay healthy and safe. Uh, My thoughts and prayers are with those who are affected by this awful pandemic. And let's keep giving thanks to all the essential service workers on the front lines, helping to bring an end to the spread and proliferation of COVID-19. We are around the corner from the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual Investor Conference. The stage is set. We've posted the presenting companies, full agenda, panels, and virtual keynotes. At most investor conferences, attendees have the ability to book one-on-one meetings with our presenting companies. The virtual is no different. Booking one-on-one investor meetings are now open as well. This is a great opportunity for you to meet management teams and ask those questions that will help you develop and or confirm your investing thesis. If you would like to participate in the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual Investor Conference, I encourage you to register on our website, www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com, and click Register Now. I can't stress enough how much easier it will be for you to navigate the event when you register. You'll be able to book one-on-ones and jump around seamlessly to each educational panel and company webcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at arcraft at We put together an all-star lineup, and I'm very excited for next week. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Andy Prykshat, portfolio manager of Edgebrook Partners LP. I've known Andy now for many years, first meeting him at our conference in Las Vegas, to our many conversations during our now formerly monthly Los Angeles Microcap meetup sessions. His story is fascinating, as he got his start in the financial world working for Bill Gates. I mean, imagine that. Literally, right out of college and going to work for one of the greats. In this interview, Andy discusses his experiences working there, lessons learned, interactions with Bill, as well as going through his investing strategy. Just a heads up, we recorded this interview on March 9th, 2020, before the stay-at-home order. Uh, was in place here in California. And we really focused our time uh, on the conversation on Andy's story, philosophy, and investing strategy. that's why you won't hear too much uh, from us talking about COVID, coronavirus, effects, impacts, um, all all of that information. So again, thank you for tuning in to episode 116 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Andy Prykshat. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet MicroCap podcast. And with me today, my guest is Andy Preikschat. He is the CIO of Edgeware Partners. Andy, welcome to the Planet MicroCap podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to have you. So to start off, uh, we have a number of topics to get to today, and I know you have some really fascinating stories to also get to. But first, let's get a, a background. You know, how'd you get your start in the wide world of investing?
1: Well, this is sort of a summary, but I started my investment career at the very top, and I've been working my way down and down and down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To summarize, I started my investment career in 98 as uh, investment analyst and equity trader for Bill Gates, and later was a sell-side analyst covering Apple when it was $1 uh, a share, and later was PM of a small cap fund and then now I'm PM of a micro cap fund that also does uh, nano cap deals in in private equity.
0: Sounds good. Well, you know what, that's a a great starting point because I I think I told you the title of this is gonna be, you know, from Microsoft to micro cap. I should be from Microsoft to now private equity, but uh, I digress. But, you know, I wanted to dive in a little bit more into your background because uh, I know in your most recent investment letter, you talked about the the three eras of Silicon Valley and how you you mentioned that it it really relates to your personal backstory as well. So can you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. So the annual letter talks about that there's been three major eras of Silicon Valley, and I credit Roger McNamee for first introducing this idea in his recent book Zucked, which was about the Facebook case and he introduces three eras of Silicon Valley uh, starting in 1945 with the Apollo era which is really the space race and also coincided with the uh, with the rise in semiconductors uh, and the second era started in roughly 1972 and ran to 2000 that was a hippie era with uh, both video games and with personal computing. Mm-hmm. So my career sort of started at the, at the tail end of the uh, hippie era, and when I was Bill Gates's trader, and actually sold uh, five billion in Microsoft shares for Bill just prior to him starting the fo- the foundation. So then the third era, roughly starting in two thousand to, to through today, is what Roger McNamee called the libertarian era, and it's really the era of Fang the. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. And that's really where we find ourselves. And the work I showed in the annual letter was summarizing these three eras uh, in three paragraphs <laughs> and explaining how each era is actually ran 27 years, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. That the, spa- the space race from beginning to, to end is, was really about 27 years, 1945 to 1972. The uh, hippie era, starting with the foundation of Atari running to the, the antitrust decision against Microsoft and the crash of, of NASDAQ in 2000 was 27 years and I think you can make the case that this libertarian era may also run 27 years and that has a lot of implications for investing mm-hmm. today so uh, over the last um, two years I've been getting more into software investing and we've been having some recent success in that. Gotcha.
0: All right. So I, I, I want to dive deeper into that a little bit later, you know, when we talk about your investing thesis and strategy and whatnot. But let, let's stick to that background. And okay. I promise we're—I my audience we're going to get to the, the bit and some of these stories from uh, when you worked with Bill Gates. Okay. Um, but, but you know, what, what what inspired you to get into investing? You know, did, did your family have experience in it? And like that inspired you? You know, what was it?
1: Well, um, both my parents are immigrants and uh, kind of an immigrant mentality when it comes to uh, investing. Like we, we can buy our own stocks, buy our own real estate, we don't need a financial helper. So mm-hmm. I really had no connections to the investment field. It was really through academics that I got an opportunity to join the Gates office. And Michael Larson, who's Bill's investment manager since 94, he's hired most of the analysts from Claremont McKenna. He's been almost cherry-picking um, the top one or two students each year since mm-hmm. since the mid-'90s. Um, so I was his fifth hire, and I'm estimating he's had over 200 hires. I think the team's about 120 people now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just fortunate in that uh, I, I grew up with a grandfather who was an engineer and scientist, and then my dad, who was trying to commercialize my grandfather's ideas. He started th- three uh, companies. Three industrial sensor companies, and later sold those three. And I was involved in the last two of those companies uh, as an intern for one, and then the last company I actually wrote my uh, senior th- uh, project on at Stanford on the third company. Um, so, I guess growing up, I wanted to study um, engineering, kind of after my grandpa, and I wanted to study a business, kind of after seeing my dad's work. Mm-hmm. So that's why I did this double degree program in engineering and economics um, to do that and I just was fortunate to do well enough in school to get that opportunity to join the Gates office.
0: I was just going to say let's go there now man so uh, so how did that how did that opportunity present itself did you apply did they hunt you down to to bring you in like how did it work?
1: Well I was in Seattle at the time so I grew up in Seattle and then I wanted to come back to Seattle after after uh, Stanford so I was working EY uh, consulting doing supply chain consulting mm-hmm. and uh, I believe one of the analysts had, had just been dismissed uh, from the gates office so they're looking for a new analyst and I was so I was there and I knew Autumn Bradley who was one of the current uh, analysts there and that enabled me to get in the door mm-hmm. so that was March of 98 uh, gotcha Okay, so
0: then, all right, now we're at the Gates Foundation. You know, let's, I mean, we'll, we'll get to some lessons learned, but, you know, sure. when you're there, tell us some of your experiences. I mean, did you get a chance to interact with Bill at, a, Bill, Mr. Gates yeah. uh, <laughs> at any yeah. time? I mean, you know, tell us a little about that.
1: Well, the the first thing I noticed, which is rather silly, is that um, it was a lot of money. <laughs> so uh, I backed up Alan Heiberger on the, uh, trading the money markets the first couple months. And I just, I realized in uh, coming in the office at 5.30 in the morning and and buying um, buying a commercial paper, and that was back when the short-term rates were about Mm 5.5%. And in just a few minutes, I could have bought several hundred uh, million dollars worth of commercial paper. And and that was actually back in the days where we actually had physical trade tickets. Mm -hmm. So I could, you could hold in your hand a trade ticket of 25 million dollars he just executed in one piece of commercial paper. So I remember just kind of waving it in the air and saying this one trade ticket of 25 million is, is probably more money than I'll see in my lifetime in terms of my cumulative earnings and my cumulative investments. Mm-hmm. So that's how I related to it being a, a lot of money, just you kind of recognize that right away. But the coolest part was not really the the dollar size of the investments, but really the access to information. So, um, we had a, a, I think it was called a first call or some kind of a terminal where I could print out street research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had little stacks of research I could print out, which is great access to information. And then also, I could call almost any executive in America and within a few hours get a phone call back. <laughs> so that was, cool. that was of course, I, it's uh, impossible to replicate that unless you're working for a famous billionaire. So. Uh, that the access to information was special for me um so i would say that was probably a, a highlight of just having the access to that information gotcha so i
0: mean i i know you have a couple stories from 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 when you're during your time there so i mean you know you, you t- divulge as much or as little as you'd like i mean i know my audience would love to hear some more war stories of uh, your time there
1: well to summarize um looking back this is actually over 20 years ago I, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times <laughs> and that was both for Bill and for me too in my early in my career. Um, so the best of times for Bill, he was the world's richest man mm-hmm. and he was also had a cover story in fortune. actually both Bill and Michael Larson. So that was the best of times you could argue and it was also the worst of times because there was the uh, Department of Justice was, had the antitrust suit against Microsoft so Bill was not in a happy mood, and uh, uh, Michael probably was not in a happy mood, so. Um, I had three uh, meetings with Bill Gates during that time, and people have often asked me what was it like to to those three meetings with Bill, and I would say he's very intense and very smart. So he, and he's actually, the Bill Gates in the 90s is not, the Bill Gates you see today on social media. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, very intense person in the, in the 90s. <laughs> so I had three meetings with him and I kind of observed three different parts of his personality. <laughs> so so the, uh, the first meeting, um, he came into the office and I think he was already, my office was actually directly across from Michael Larson so I could actually hear most of Michael's conversations on the phone mm-hmm. from my office. Uh, unless he shut the door. So that first meeting with Bill, I think Bill came in and was immediately talking about a biotech stock, which I've probably forgotten on which one. But, And then Michael introduced Bill t- to the office and so Bill came over. And I just remember standing up and Bill looked at me, but he looked through me almost like I didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so almost like, almost like a level of aloofness. Mm-hmm. And I guess he didn't find me interesting at all because he turned back around and started talking to Michael again. So that was really my first encounter. <laughs> uh, and the second encounter was um, he was more friendly, and we actually had a, a pizza, uh, Domino's Pizza celebration in the office. And that's oh. usually how the team celebrated. We ate pizza. Nice. So it would be pizza, Domino's Pizza and Cherry Cokes. So we actually had a, <laughs> uh, a fridge in my office with Cherry Cokes in case he made an appearance. And, <laughs> So, and, it, and it's, it's silly enough, in the documentary, Inside Bill's Brain, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a little portable fridge of Coke's also, so I guess 20 years later, he's still doing the, the, portable, uh, Coke mm-hmm. but, um, the portable Coke fridge, but- um portable Coke fridge. But Michael did ask me, um, well, it was kind of silly, but while we were having pizza, we're all standing up in the, in the office, and Michael Larson turns to Bill and said, Bill, you know Andy, right? And Bill, turning with a a pizza in his hand, said, yes. (laughs) So my ego, I'm sure, inflated even more um, that I didn't really know Bill. I was kind of working in the office, but Bill apparently knew me. Mm -hmm. So Um, I thought that was silly. That was the second encounter with him. And then the third encounter was um, an actual meeting about his portfolio. Mm -hmm. So every seven weeks or so, Michael Larson would go to Microsoft and talk to Bill one-on-one about his portfolio. But once a year, we had an annual meeting where we would sit at a table. It was just Bill, Bill's sister, Michael Larson, Alan Heiberger, and then I was brought in for part of the meeting. So um, and there, well, this is during the height of the uh, Department of Justice investigation. So it was also one of those cold, dark, rainy, uh, Seattle nights, and oh, this that, is a worse yeah, story <laughs> yeah, yeah. so the the weather outside was about similar to weather inside the conference room, so Bill was you know not happy i think mm-hmm. he I think he looked up from the table maybe once and over the the hour long meeting, mm-hmm. so he uh I, I saw like the, the darker side a, a bit of, of him at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know what? It, it, anybody who's going through what he went through at that yeah. time, it's totally imaginable. But, you know, it must have pushed you in the sense that, you know, probably your, your superiors at the time probably wanted to uh, get more out of you because they were facing the same kind of pressure, you know? So, I mean, with that said, what were some of the main lessons that you took away from that experience and has affected you to this day?
1: Um, well, I should share that um, I'm grateful for the opportunity because within the first month or two of, of my being there, I uh, had, had an epiphany, so, and it's, it's rather silly looking back, but I actually walked into Michael Larson's office and said, I have an epiphany, <laughs> and he, he had both his hands on his Bloomberg, and he looked over at me. He did not take his hands off the Bloomberg. <laughs> he said, what's that? <laughs> and I don't know if he was trying to question me, but, I, but he's, he, I said, I had epiphany. I had an insight. And he looked at me probably like I was a little bit weird, which I was. <laughs> and, he's, and, he's, and I said, well, I had an insight that I love equity research. I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. So that was in the first uh, month or so of working there. So I think you're blessed in your career if you have that insight, like you have that epiphany that wow, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. So I'm grateful that I had that epiphany in the first couple months of working there. Um, and let's see what else. Well, I guess I was. I really got to explore that opportunity in terms of research and trading during that during that year there. So I estimate I, tr- I traded maybe $6 billion in, in stock uh, for Bill, including $5 billion in Microsoft shares. And then, as I said before, the access information was so incredible that we're able to f- I was able to kind of be part of and, and start identifying themes. So I think that's also what I've carried away is that uh, I've started to think more about themes of investing. Mm-hmm. So two themes that I was introduced to while I worked there, one theme was, um, well, just to put it broadly, is how do you hedge a massive position in one tech stock? So what Michael was challenged with is Bill had $50 billion in one tech stock, Microsoft. How do you hedge that without shorting your holding? <laughs> yeah. So uh, And Michael asked me to look at that, think about that, and I was just a few years out of college, I guess I didn't really, was not advanced enough as an investor to really think through that. But the two obvious ways to hedge, which had become, I'm sure, themes in Bill's portfolio, one was just to short other tech companies. And that's not my story to tell whether Bill shorted other tech companies during that time. And the second area would be uh, real estate. So I believe I'm just heard through the grapevine that I believe Bill has actual ag team, an agricultural team, where they actually go and buy, and I would estimate that to be in the several billion dollars of farmland. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been a second way that Bill's been able to um, hedge the portfolio is building a real estate and farmland portfolio.
0: Gotcha. All right. One last question about your experience there. You know, you said you, you've traded $6 billion worth of stock. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our audience would love to know about what it's like to actually do that, you know, because obviously you can never, you can't trade all 6 billion at once, you know, or, or whatever, a couple billion or hundred millions at a time, you know, like yeah. how, how, how do you sell those huge blocks at any one time? Do you have to mask it? I mean, how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, well, back in the late 90s, it really was, pre-decimalization mm-hmm. and the, the standard commission back then was actually an eighth of a share so mm-hmm. 12 and a half cents per share mm-hmm. was a commission and i actually phoned in 90 percent of our orders we had a small instant net terminal that i used to do some electronic trading but mm-hmm. that was pretty new so on the i sold 50 million shares of microsoft over about two weeks and the stock was around a hundred so we michael set up on a whiteboard of which uh, banks we were going to use to sell the shares and i executed the trades mm-hmm. and but looking back i actually did add value <laughs> because <laughs> you know electronic trading there's what's called a go along right. right so i kind of implemented a go along verbally bef- before that was even part of electronic mm-hmm. trading so what i would usually do is i'd say you know we want to s- sell 1 million shares of Microsoft, but don't be more than, only be between 20 and 30 percent of the volume. Mm-hmm. We found that that level of trade was, would not depress the stock. So if, you, if we were only between 20 and 30 percent of the volume, we could actually move that stock uh, fairly well and, and able to, enable it to sell those 50 million shares. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I was watching on Bloomberg, the GIP, which is the, you know, the, the intraday, intraday price, and I know at the same time that Paul Allen's trader was kind of competing with us on the sales. <laughs> because occasionally, Microsoft would get smacked down like 50 cents mm. just on rough uh, orders, jagged orders. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that was Paul Allen's trader who was not using go-alongs. So if I, if we, if I were able to save an eighth of a share or on 50 million shares, right. um, I was calculating that and that was actually several million dollars in savings which was probably like 50 times my uh, annual pay. So I can say, hey, <laughs> I was, you know, I added some value <laughs> as a trader, I, I hope so. All right, so so from there,
0: you know, you, you yeah. spent, you, you were there for about a year. So fill the gap for me from the, your, the time that you left uh, working with the Gates uh, office to now starting uh, Edgebrook at, uh, Partners.
1: Yeah, so, um, I really, as I said, I fell in love with equity research. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know how silly it sounds, but I wanted to study especially tech, tech research. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately my role was completely changed at the Gates office. I was, I was brought, taken off the research and trading and to implementing a, a, a software system, which I hated, and I was um, quickly pushed out of the, of the group. And I left and joined a Soundview technology group which was a boutique tech bank. It was actually the merger of three tech banks, uh, Wit Capital, Soundview, which was, had a lot of, uh, did a lot of great industry research and some of the principles came from Gartner Group. And then E-Offering, which is E-Trades Investment Bank. So it was a merger of these three tech banks and there I covered healthcare IT for a little under a year and then I covered consumer systems, which was Apple, Gateway, and the handheld companies so I was covering Apple uh, when it was a roughly $1 share, a $7 billion market cap, and also covering Gateway. And we had a great um, call on, actually a short call on Gateway in that 2000-2001 time frame. So I, I can go into those, where uh, we could do another <laughs> podcast on, on, uh, on those two companies. But probably the best day of my career was the one day at Apple in, in 2001. Mm-hmm. So, in, and I had- Best day of your career yeah, at that time. At that you know? time. <laughs> okay. Well, I would, I would still say it was the best day of my career. <laughs> Basically, I had um, five one-hour meetings, back-to-back-to-back, to back to back with the top five executives of Apple, except mm-hmm. for Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. So head of hardware, head of software, head of sales, uh, Tim Cook, COO, we had lunch together, and then CFO Fred Anderson. Oh, cool. So that's, a, that's one neat day. Uh, that, I
0: mean, that's, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, anything that you pulled away from that, that, you know, you said it was one of the greatest days of your career. So, I mean, was there anything that you pulled away from that day that,
1: you know, you still use to, to this day? Well, I was with Mark Specker, who's a great analyst, mm-hmm. um, and he asked one really pesky question to Fred Anderson, mm-hmm. <laughs> the CFO. Of Apple at the time and he said how is your how is your ratio or how do you feel about the ratio between your direct versus indirect sales and Fred kind of got a little bit animated and he said oh we definitely want to increase our direct sales (laughs) so (laughs) Mark Specker and I kind of put two and two together and knew that Apple was going to to announce retail stores and we knew this um, and the next morning told the SoundView clients that that was gonna happen. And we probably accelerated Apple uh, announcing that in a press release, Uh, and they were not happy (laughs) about that. But um, that ended up becoming, as we know, within 10 years, Apple had the highest square foot sales, highest sales per square foot of any retailer in the world. And probably half of new Mac buyers were introduced to Apple through the stores, right. So it's just it was just fascinating to kind of be a part of that one little piece of history. <laughs> that's,
0: I mean, that's, that's pretty cool that you guys were able to deduce just even from that one animated thing. I mean, that's probably helped you especially to this day when you're talking to microcap management. And you're like, listen, man, I called when they were before they were going to open retail stores just from this one animated five second blurb. I can tell what you yeah. got going on right now. Next.
1: Well, we'll see. I mean. Really, Mark Mark Specker (laughs) was a great analyst, and we did some great work on Apple. And it it was one of those times where it was three tech banks merging and and then a huge downturn occurring. So we had layoffs at the bank like every quarter for seven straight quarters. Mm -hmm. And uh, meanwhile, I actually told the executive committee that we should upgrade Apple to strong buy. And I was shot down, and in fact, uh, mostly ignored. You know, a few people laughed at me, and a few people yelled at me. <laughs> but in general, just the, the politics of trying to, to do cell side research at that time were, was very difficult for a young analyst. So, mm-hmm. I was I left the bank in uh, the middle of two thousand one, and this is actually f- a few months before the pod before uh, iPod was even even brought, um, mm-hmm. and Apple stock didn't actually start roaring higher until about three years later. Right. So. Um, so in 2001, I wanted to go back to the buy side. And it was one of those difficult things where uh, the top funds can kind of hire anyone they want, and the small funds want to hire you, but they can't pay you. <laughs> so um, and this is maybe one little bonus you know, to give the uh, younger analysts or anyone who wants to go in to work for a fund. But I, I used a kind of a tactic that, um, that I would probably recommend, which. I basically wrote an email to uh, 200 fund managers just saying, hey, uh, I'd like to work, I'd like to consider working for you and I'm willing to work for you for free for six months. So with that offer to 200 fund managers, I got about 20 meetings. And from those 20 meetings, I got two offers. Mm, Nice. So it it seems like that ratio kind of uh, makes sense. You, you, You contact 100 fund managers you get 10 meetings, you get one offer. Yep. So uh, that's kind of the approach that probably still works today. Uh, and basically, I got two verbal offers. One with a fund in New York. And one was a fund, new fund starting in LA. And actually, it was a gentleman who actually had inter- also had a connection to Bill Gates. He actually had taught Bill Gates to play golf back in the mid, early mid-90s. So he was a, a top retail stockbroker and actually Payne Stewart's caddy and had a lot of uh, retail clients and, and executive clients in LA. Mm-hmm. So I became his research guy and then the portfolio manager of the small cap fund. So we had a two-year record there, but I w- was not a partner. And um, I also went without salary the last 18 months, and which is difficult, but we had a great two-year record. So at the end of that, I asked to, to buy in, and it was, it was Way too expensive or difficult for me to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of like the uh, Jerry Maguire (laughs) scene, (laughs) where, uh, you know, who's with me? (laughs) And one client came with me. So that was enough for me to at least start uh, my fund Edgebrook in 2005. Gotcha. And I've been doing that. We've had a wave of growth, some difficulties with the 08, and then now a recent wave of growth again and the overall the record is is ahead of the market but i've had two major drawdowns but i can talk about the investment process or things yeah, like that,
0: that we're, fi- we're there we're oh, yeah. finally <laughs> yeah. there so with with that let let's get what your your investing philosophy and strategy is you know i you outlined it a little bit in the last two letters that you put out so you know i i know my audience would love to hear a little more
1: yeah so the letter talks about um what we look at, and I've been doing microcap investing now for full time for fifteen years, mm-hmm. and actually, even you know, even Bill Gates has a, had a microcap portfolio. <laughs> There's about fifty million in microcap stocks when I was working there. I was going to so, ask, how, yeah. how did you go from you know yeah. looking at Apple and, yeah, all, and yeah. all
0: these, and then now all of a sudden you're in tech? Yeah, hindsight, <laughs> it was it was
1: obviously silly for me to to, to leave. The uh, you know, you can make your career on one st- one stock call. Sure. So my peer, Jason Wells, who was covering, I was covering Gateway and Apple with, he went on to become head of tech research for, for Ascend Capital, which is a billion dollar hedge fund. And then I came down to LA and started Legends Financial, which somehow I just got into small cap stocks and I just stuck with that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think part of that was I was one of the early members on Value Investors Club. Mm-hmm. So it was Michael Burry and about 30 of us on this site in 2001, 2002, uh, looking at these value ideas. And most of these were small caps. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how I kind of gravitated to the small cap ideas. Uh, and we had, you know, I mentioned that in the Gates office, we were looking heavily at cable companies. Um, and there was a bidding war for the cable companies. Well, in the early 2000s, after the, the big telecom crash, there were some wireless companies where It was a similar dynamic to the cable companies, where you had they were able to raise their prices because of uh, certain data plans, uh, and there was a rapid uh, bidding war consolidation for the wireless companies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Nextel International came out of bankruptcy, and we bought that stock, and in one year it went up about 15 times. Actually, it went up over 50 times, and then went back into bankruptcy. (laughs) But that helped kind of create my early track record was finding those multi-baggers in the wireless stocks in the early 2000s. And these were all small cap companies generally that became, you know, became larger.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so then let so that brings us back now okay. to, gives yeah. us a little context yeah. as to how you got into to micro caps now. So, yeah. 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 so So let's dig in a little deeper then into okay. the strategy.
1: Yeah, so I think once a year it's good to kind of put your investment process down on paper. What, what is it you do? How, how do you... Look at companies. So, a year ago, I did that in the annual letter, and I have three filters that I use mm-hmm. for microcap companies. And so, each year, I meet in person with about a 100 companies, mm-hmm. and they're in one of, I define my circle of competence as three areas software, consumer products, and industrial products. I don't really step out of that with, with only a few exceptions. So, if you look at, for example, Joel Greenblatt, uh, his book, little book that beats the market. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the early members of Value Investors Club. A lot of the guys in there kind of take after Joel Greenblatt's uh, uh, method- methodology in his, and it was also his early book. Mm-hmm. You can be this, the stock market genius. So he talks about buying a great business at a great price. So he talks about a great business being a high return on capital. And then a, a, a great price, meaning a great, a high earnings yield. Mm-hmm. So I kind of ad- adapt those two criteria to microcaps. So the problem is microcaps, you may not know if the return on capital is great. You may not the, the company may not even be prof, quite profitable yet. So I define that in my in the microcap sense is I want to only invest in microcap companies that are number one market leader in some niche. So that's kind of my first filter. They've got to be number one. So I don't I'm not gonna invest here in the number four dating site. <laughs> um, it's gotta be number one in some niche. So that's how I kind of look at the great business. And then a great price, I define as we want to see the company be able to, to grow earnings three to five X over three to five years. Mm-hmm. So generally these companies are profitable or just cl- becoming profitable. That's when I start looking at them. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for the three to five X over three to five years. And then the third criteria which we added is really about the management. and. I'm not unique in these in these three filters. Other people have variants on these three filters, but the third filter I call incentivized fanatics, which is similar to Tr- Charlie Munger's intelligent fanatic, but it's I call set. it incentivized fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because well, it's rare to meet these intelligent fanatics in microcaps, um, but you can meet incentivized fanatics. So I define that as, and I've been around over 15 years full-time microcaps to see a lot of the good and the bad uh, and the ugly. And I've found that the sweet spot for insider ownership is usually between 20 and 45%. Mm -hmm. So if a management team and board own less than 20%, I have a hard time taking them seriously. And if they own more than 45%, uh, like 60% or more, I've had difficulty with with them being uh, friendly to minority shareholders. Mm There's generally a lot of related party transactions, which are more common. They almost treat the company as their own piggy bank. And right. that, especially outside the U.S., was a problem for me doing non-U.S. investing. So I, I try to focus on the incentivized part, meaning that they own 20 to 45%. And then the fanatic part is trying to find the culture of the management and the company being one of high energy, high integrity, uh, also like a lot of focus on quality and innovation in the company and that's really a art and that's why I try to get these meetings because only really spending time with executives in the company do you really get a feel for Mm -hmm. is this company fanatical about their approach.
0: So it sounds like management and assessing management is a huge aspect to your strategy and your philosophy. I mean how many, let's say ballpark, I've actually never asked this before, yeah. but oh, yeah. ballpark, yeah. How, how long do you like to spend talking with management before you're, you're comfortable making a, you know, a decision one way or the other
1: or an average? Well, yeah. Right? Well, it's hard. It's hard to say on the average. I haven't really thought about that, but, um, I probably tend to, to go in a bit earlier than some other investors might spend six months looking at a company before they buy. I, I can be as, as little as a week or a month, mm-hmm. I've, but I generally require the the conversation with management before building the position. Mm-hmm. So each year I've been meeting with about 100 uh, companies, small public companies, and then only about 10 companies or so make it through those three filters. Mm-hmm. And then our portfolio is really our top five to seven of those. Mm-hmm. And we, as I said, we're looking out three to five years. Mm-hmm. And and in the, a recent caveat to this is that I'm looking increasingly more on pra- to private companies also. Mm-hmm. But there we look at actually we need to make a tight case for 10x earnings growth and valuation growth o- over five years. So it's looking for higher upside but a, a longer investment horizon.
0: Gotcha. All right, so I,
1: I now want to dig into the 2019 annual letter. Okay. Um,
0: in the letter, you talked about some positions that you closed out of. Um, yeah. Also, looking at now some of these orphan companies, which I right. know you're going to explain in a second. Um, so, and then also the performance. So let's, let's hit, you know, all those three things right there.
1: Okay, sure. So we go into detail um, on our three exit positions. Mm-hmm. So, um, as you know, uh, expel. Uh, it's been a big winner for both Value Investors Club and Micro Cap Club. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Microcap Cap Club guys probably own 10% of the company. So anyway, but it was written up on both sides, and I basically was a fund and family were about 3% shareholders, and that was a great five-year winner. Uh, that, was, that met our three criteria. It was, they were the number one market leader in paint protection film, actually it's kind of a duopoly with SunTech. Uh, there was a potential for the 3 to 5x increase in earnings over 3 to 5 years, and they met the incentivized fanatic where they management and board owned about 45 percent and uh, fanatical about innovation and quality. Mm-hmm. So that met our three filters, and that was a great kind of case study of a great microcap company uh, going from growth story. Yeah, so. So two years ago, we owned basically 3% of expel. Uh, today, we own zero expel, but we own 5 to 10% of four growing uh, uh, software companies, three of which are profitable. Mm-hmm. And so in two years from now, we expect to own, hopefully, seven, 10 uh, to 30% ownership positions in uh, software companies. Mm-hmm. So. As I mentioned, there's there's been these three eras of Silicon Valley and really in the third era, which is a libertarian era, where software is really, really is eating the world. And we we think that there's probably another seven years or so to run in the in these there's so it's still an opportune time if you can help identify these companies, that are gonna dominate a niche, a vertical in software. So there are two private investments or actually two rental software companies. And uh, I can go into detail on them, but one is kind of an Airbnb concept, mm-hmm. but it's Airbnb for motorcycles. <laughs> and mm-hmm. obviously, five years ago, uh, I, you know, I looked at the Airbnb for RVs idea, and mm-hmm. I missed it. Uh, those two private companies, the Airbnb for, for RVs, are valued at about $400 million. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think motorcycles might be one of the last categories where there's no winner yet. Mm-hmm. So um, I was actually co-led the first two rounds in this company and on the board until recently. So, And we think that company has a similar open path to being a several hundred million dollar company. Mm -hmm. So that was one private investment. Uh, And then the other one is a uh, rental software used by AV equipment uh, producers for live events. Mm -hmm. So you think Coachella, who brings in all that equipment for Coachella? all the AV equipment and staging. Well, there's about 900 or 1,000 production companies who, who do that. And they use this software called Flex uh, to manage inventory and to price the job to the concerts. So it's a second example of a, a vertical niche software company that um, kind of dominates that, that niche. And uh, we think there's a lot of opportunity there as well.
0: Cool. So, you know, I'm at the point where I, I, I usually ask this to everybody, but you've given some really some insightful stories that it, it sounds like have affected your career. But let's, you know, I gotta ask. But what investing experience, other than what you've said thus far in our interview, had the most impact on your career? Or it could what,
1: be one from that you said. Well, life experience <laughs> or investing experience. Investing. <laughs> investing. Well, I think. You know my, I think you have to be open to, to change um, in that when I started as a PM, I had pretty strict definitions of uh, what I was looking for. And I was looking out, I wanted to see 40% upside within 12 to 18 months, and it was kind of a very almost institutional mm-hmm. focus. And I realized that um, as I gotten older that my investment horizon has lengthened. So instead of 12 to 18 months, it's three to five years, and actually, it's gone up to five years now in the privates. So I, I think I've just expanded my, my mind. I think you have to do that, with with investing, um, to develop these themes, and then have a longer horizon, mm-hmm. to really make make the big money. I mean. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's one takeaway. And then the circle of competence is. Um, Another take, another takeaway, and, and until you've really been burned by stepping outside your circle of competence and, and having a, a donut, a zero, <laughs> do you really understand the importance of sticking in your circle of competence? Right. And I mean, every every top investor has had um, a donut. I mean, you so <laughs> you know. You, know. So you learn the most. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know. So we could, you know, we could do another whole podcast on donuts. So if you (laughs) want to go into investment mistakes, uh, I've had, I've had some donuts. um. Well,
0: yeah, how about that? I mean, without going into, into, you know, the longer story, but, you know, what, what would you say were some mistakes that you made that you, you really, you know, learned from?
1: Yeah, I think well, I used, you know, the bidding war theme was something that I kind of took from the Gates office about how there's this bidding war in cable companies. Mm-hmm. What other industries could there be a bidding war in? So I looked at the cable stocks and then to the wireless stocks, then to fiber stocks. So kind of in all three of those ways, we had multi-baggers. But I tried to apply that same lesson to in the, to uh, natural resource companies. Mm-hmm. So I looked at in 2005 to seven. I actually had a full-time analyst just looking at copper and iron ore stocks, and we basically looked at every single one in the world. <laughs> there, there were about the 70 public copper companies and about 30 public iron ore companies. So as was a similar thesis. We thought that because of China's demand for copper and iron ore that prices would be high and would create a bidding war for those copper and iron ore assets. The problem we had was uh, stock picking and I admit was was basically terrible. Like we we picked some companies that had problems with their operations, and I was also flat out lied to by some companies. Mm. So it's um, I I realized that um, stick with your circle of competence. Yeah. So I think you know Mark Twain said it with What's a mine? What, you know what is a mine? A mine is a hole in the ground with a liar on top of it. <laughs> So I kind of found that out the hard way. It's pretty insightful for <laughs> you <Yeah>. the 1800s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, That's funny. So I I, I would, st- again, you know, stick with your circle of competence. So thankfully, I, I come from a family where we had we had three. My family founded, founded three industrial sensor companies and sold all three. We kind of went <laughs> three for three. And so now today I feel like I have this competence to look at industrial companies okay. from that. And then the consumer product side, we had this home run with Expel and some other success. So I feel like that's in our circle of competence is to look at some consumer companies. And then on the software side, I've had some recent success and some historical success in that. So I feel like um, those are three areas and that I believe to you know, stick with stick with what you know and what you've had the success in.
0: And Andy, I also have to follow up. I mean, what what kind of questions do you tend to ask management teams when you're in a one-on-one or you go to a company visit?
1: Well, this is rather silly because I've narrowed it down to only asking management two questions. Okay. So the first question gets to our are they the number one market leader in a niche? So I ask the question, What are you the best in the world at? And the beauty of that question is it's open-ended and it can, it can lead into a whole 30-minute discussion on what, what actually are they the best in the world at or the best in their industry at. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is getting to the incentivized fanatic part where what is, how much stock does management and board own, including friends and family? So that I'm looking for, do the, does management, board, and insiders, do they own... T- ideally 20 to 45% of shares. I feel like that's a sweet spot for, for incentivized fanatics that we seek.
0: So it seems like the second question is, you know, they can't really lie to you on that, but it seems right. like the the first question is where your BS meter needs to be kind of through the roof. So what are some indicators for you when, if they ask that and they say they're the number one or the market leader in that niche, you know, or best in the world that, you know, what are some things that you look for that you're like, mm, I don't know if he's, hundred percent or she is on hundred percent on that one
1: yeah one thing I look at is is market share so I need to actually validate are they actually do they actually have the largest market share in, in that segment so we can go, go into detail on that or, or looking at pricing do they actually have a premium prices for their product and, and why is that happening mm-hmm. so and then they may be the best in the in the world so to speak in something else um, like they could be the lowest cost leader or have the best sales team or have the best quality control or something so these, these different areas can end up becoming very important mm-hmm. but the beauty of that question is it's it's open-ended enough that it can then lead into going deeper
0: mm-hmm. well it could either uh, bury them or right. uh, you
1: know it could be seeds for, for growth <laughs> right. I guess in that sense. I mean, at the end of the day you know we meet with the, over a hundred companies. We're looking for just one or two big winners for the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately we have to sift through a lot of things.
0: Right. And one last thing on this topic, you know, as you say, you go to at least a hundred companies and talk to all these management teams, you go and visit their, their plants, you know, so you must see a lot of good names, you know, but for you, what, what separates the good from the great?
1: Well, I'm looking in short, I'm looking for home runs. I'm looking for company that can grow their their earnings and the share price 3 to 5x over 3 to 5 years. So there's a lot of microcap companies where you can make a tight case that so they can double their share price. And a lot of microcap investors look for that, but I don't because I realize that if if the company messes up, which happens often, the stock will probably go down a lot more than 50%. So we're looking for companies that can at least triple their earnings and the share price. So that separates my approach with a lot of other investors. And Andy,
0: um, real quick, can you just, uh, do you own any shares in any of the companies that you mentioned, not withstanding the, you know, in your portfolio, of course, but maybe from some of the stories and Apple and all that kind of stuff? Uh,
1: Today, no. Uh, The only companies we mention are the the four in our portfolio that we talk about. Got it.
0: So we're there, man. I gotta ask where can my my audience go and find more information about you
1: and Edgebrook, Edgebrook Partners? Okay, great, well, I'm on LinkedIn. It's, it's probably where I have the most engagement, so I actually have 5,000 CEO connections on LinkedIn, so mm-hmm. if you're welcome to connect with me there. Uh, also, so I'm Chief Investment Officer of the Edgebrook Fund, and I'm also Chief Investment Officer for a RIA called SPRIVE. It stands for Succeed, Prosper, Thrive. <laughs> and we have actually about 10 NFL players as our clients, so um, if you're a professional athlete, or a business owner and find our investing interesting, you know, please reach out to me. Uh, I think LinkedIn is probably where I have the most engagement.
0: Got it. Well, you can also go to edgebrookinvest.com as well, and uh, there's also a few links that you can get to, for, to as LinkedIn. And you also have a Twitter account now. I know I was the one I think that told you to get one. So okay. what, what, what is that handle? <laughs> okay,
1: yeah, just my name, Andy Pragshat, <laughs> and uh, I'm a new fin twit on there. You get and after it, though. You're, you're okay, doing good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right. Well, with that, Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, you know, I'll see you at our next
1: meetup. Okay, great. appreciate that. It's awesome to be here. Thank you. thank you.
0: Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap Podcast. And thank you, Andy, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.